0: Chapter 22 of The Romance of Modern Chemistry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Romance of Modern Chemistry by James C. Philip. Chapter 22, How Man Competes with Nature. Everyone has doubtless observed that in the growing infant, the bump of destructiveness is early developed, and that it is only at a later stage that this impulse to take things in pieces is succeeded by the desire to put together, to construct in the gradual development of the science of chemistry we can detect similar stages in one of these the energies of chemical workers were mainly directed to breaking down all the various substances found in nature and discovering the simplest elements of which matter consists at another and later stage attention has been chiefly directed to building up from simpler materials the various products of the earth we might in fact speak of the one method of work as destructive and of the other as constructive such destructive work or analysis as the chemist calls it has however served a very useful purpose it was necessary to demolish the fantastic structures of the alchemists and to get down to the bedrock of fact before a building could be reared worthy of the name of science once the foundation was well and truly laid the constructive work of building synthesis as the chemist calls it could be taken in hand why the reader may ask should we trouble ourselves to build up substances which nature readily supplies why not accept her gifts gratefully and cease worrying about synthesis now in at least one case which has already been mentioned the reply to these questions is quite simple the value of nitrate of soda as a nitrogenous manure has been emphasized and at present the beds of this material in Chile are largely requisitioned for the purpose but this is a case where nature's stores are limited and the prospect that in thirty or forty years the supply from this source will come to an end has stimulated the discovery of some method of utilizing the vast stock of nitrogen in the atmosphere the way in which this is being effected has already been described and it is sufficient to point out that the artificial production of nitrate regarded as an attempt to imitate nature has a very practical object however it may be now there is no doubt that in the earlier stages of synthetic chemistry the work was undertaken and carried out purely in a spirit of scientific investigation without any reference to utility and without the expectation of favors to come in the shape of hard cash returns. Innumerable chemists have spent their years in unremitting toil, striving only to let the light into many an obscure corner. Their labors may have led in after years to applications of great commercial value, but all that these early pioneers had was the love of their work, the honor, and the glory. Nowadays the commercial side of chemistry is very much in evidence, and the laboratory is in many cases a necessary part of the factory, its brains, in fact. Investigation and research carried out with the definite object of making money is a little less romantic than heroic attempts to win nature's secrets for the sake of knowledge alone, but the former is more immediately practical, and we must recognize that it has been very productive in results. Synthetic chemistry may be said to date from a certain red-letter day in 1828, when Voller succeeded in producing carbamid urea artificially. This bold statement does not sound very stirring, but Voller's achievement was big with meaning for the years to come. It must be admitted that if the general reader were to listen to the long tale of Voller's discoveries, he would probably not select the artificial production of carbamid as the most useful or the most interesting. A boy would be interested in Voller as the first who described the curious behavior of mercury thiocyanate, which swells up into worm-like shape when heated, a scene familiar, to all who have looked at pharaoh's serpent. But Fuller's fame does not rest on the discovery of pharaoh's serpent, or even on the preparation of aluminum, which he was the first to accomplish, but mainly on the production of carbamid from inorganic materials. Now carbamid is essentially an animal product. The cast-off nitrogen of the human body is thrown out in the form of carbamid, and the average adult produces about one ounce of this substance every day. It is got rid of in the urine, which contains 1-2% to 2% of carbamide in the dissolved condition. At the time of Fuller's discovery, the view was everywhere held that the complex substances occurring in plants and animals were produced only by the action of a special vital force. It was therefore vain to hope that these products of the organism, organic substances as they were called, could possibly be obtained from the dry bones of inorganic material. Fuller's success in producing carbamide in the laboratory from purely inorganic substances gave a severe blow to these old ideas in fact it upset them altogether vital force was evidently not necessary for the production of organic substances a conclusion which has been abundantly confirmed since wohler's time and is being daily confirmed in every chemical laboratory suppose now we try to fill in the details of this epoch-making discovery and to see how by mere laboratory operations it is possible to build up or synthesize carbamid from its elements the inorganic substance which is most nearly related to carbamid is a compound of carbon hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen called ammonium cyanate and fuller discovered that by merely evaporating to dryness a solution of this compound in water a large proportion of it was changed straight away into carbamid if then we show that ammonium cyanate can be made from its constituent elements in the laboratory we are justified in saying that carbamid can be produced artificially. The first link in the chain between the separate elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen at the one end, and ammonium, cyanate at the other, is acetylene. We have already seen that this gas can be produced from inorganic materials. By heating lime and carbon in the electric furnace, calcium carbide is produced, and to get acetylene from calcium carbide, only water is required. But a more direct synthesis of acetylene is possible by making an electric arc between carbon rods in an atmosphere of hydrogen. Under these conditions, acetylene, which is a compound of carbon and hydrogen, is produced in small quantity. Now acetylene gas, when mixed with nitrogen gas and exposed to the action of electric sparks, combines with the latter element, forming prussic acid, or hydrocyanic acid, as the chemist calls it. And when prussic acid is neutralized with potash, we obtain the salt potassium cyanide, a very poisonous compound of potassium carbon and nitrogen. Potassium cyanide can be very easily melted in an iron dish, and in the molten state readily absorbs oxygen from the air, forming a salt called potassium cyanate, a compound of potassium carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. If this substance is dissolved in water and sulphate of ammonia added, we get a double exchange taking place, whereby ammonium cyanate and potassium sulphate are formed. This gradual building up of carbamid may be represented graphically in the following figure. Carbon plus hydrogen gives acetylene. Acetylene plus nitrogen gives prussic acid. Prussic acid plus potash gives potassium cyanide. Potassium cyanide plus oxygen gives potassium cyanate. Potassium cyanate plus ammonium sulfate provides ammonium cyanate, which leads to carbamid. It may be objected that besides the four elements, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, three compounds have been introduced into this synthesis, namely potash, water, and ammonium sulfate. If space and the reader's patience permitted, it might, however, be shown that these compounds can also be built up out of their constituent elements, so that the whole chain is complete. From the simple carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen to the organic compound carbamid. Voller's wonderful discovery was interesting not only because carbamid was the first organic compound to be prepared in the laboratory from inorganic materials, but also because it consists of the same elements as are present in ammonium cyanate, and more than that, the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen are present in exactly the same proportions in the two compounds. The extraordinary fact that two chemical compounds which are quite distinct in external appearance and behavior may contain the same elements united in the same proportions was very puzzling to chemists at that time, although nowadays it is taken quite as a matter of course. Later workers have shown that such differences are due to a very subtle distinction in the way in which the atoms are arranged in the molecules. The internal anatomy of the molecule is different in the two cases. Since that red-letter day in 1828, synthetic chemistry has made gigantic strides, and we have learned to produce artificially hundreds of naturally occurring products. In many cases, such an imitation of nature has very little interest for anybody outside of a chemical laboratory. But, on the other hand, the synthetic product does occasionally come into the market as a competitor of the natural substance. An interesting example of this is furnished by the history of alizarin. For centuries, this valuable dye stuff was obtained from the matter root, and large areas of France, Holland, Italy, and Turkey were given over to the growth of the plant cloth dyed with alizarin has been found on egyptian mummies so that its use goes back to a remote age yet within the short space of forty years this ancient product of the vegetable world has been unceremoniously hustled out of the market by the artificial dye the latter can now be produced more cheaply than the natural alizarin with the result that the cultivation of the matter plant has almost ceased the magnitude of the trade revolution thus due to the synthetic production of a natural dye may be gauged from the fact that for ten years previous to the discovery of the value of the annual import of matter into Great Britain averaged one million pounds, while ten years later the value had sunk to twenty-four thousand pounds. All this meant unemployment and privation to the people engaged in the cultivation of the matter plant, but indeed it is frequently the case that the advance of science, although beneficial to society as a whole, involves suffering to many individuals. In explaining the synthesis of carbamid, we were at pains to follow the successive steps by which it is possible to build up the final compound from the component elements. It must not be supposed, however, that the manufacturer of alizarin starts with the elements of which that substance is composed. As a matter of fact, the chief raw material of alizarin is anthracene, a hydrocarbon which is extracted from coal-tar. It has been shown that this hydrocarbon can be synthesized in the laboratory, and as everything else used in the manufacture of alizarin can be similarly built up from inorganic materials, it follows that we have here an instance of the artificial formation of a complex natural product. The manufacturer, however, who has to consider the price of raw material and the cost of labor, starts with some other natural product, in this case anthracene, which is at once cheap and easily obtained. Natural alizarin has gone down before the artificial product, and a similar fate seems to be in store for another well-known dye stuff, namely indigo. It is some time now since chemists manage to produce indigo synthetically in the laboratory. but as is frequently found, it is a quite different thing to turn out products profitably on the manufacturing scale. Dividends become a prime consideration, and the question arises whether the artificial product can be manufactured cheaply enough to compete successfully with the natural article. In the case of indigo, the interval of time between the laboratory synthesis and the successful manufacture on a large scale was considerable. Years elapsed before all difficulties were overcome, but science prevailed in the end, and the artificial production of indigo on commercial lines is an accomplished fact. The raw materials on which the manufacture of indigo depends are 1. The hydrocarbon naphthalene 2. Ammonia, both obtained from coal 3. Acetic acid, obtained from wood for oxygen from the air. Starting with these, chemists have elaborated a process whereby artificial indigo is turned out sufficiently cheaply to compete with the natural dye stuff. Already the latter has been hard hit, and the cultivation of the plant from which it is obtained is apparently doomed. The value of the indigo exported from India was £3,570,000 in 1895, and only 556,500 pounds in 1904. While of the total quantity of indigo consumed in the various countries of the world at the present time, between 80 and 90 percent is the artificial product. This latter, it must be clearly understood, is not a mere substitute. It is exactly the same chemical compound as is derived from the plant. The synthesis of indigo on a manufacturing scale is indeed one of the most remarkable achievements of modern chemistry. It has been spoken of as a monumental example of scientific skill, patience, and resourcefulness, and as absolutely unparalleled in the recent history of chemical industry. The reader will perceive that the advance of chemical science, while it is to the interests of the community as a whole, may involve serious trouble and possibly extinction to special industries. There is no partiality in the business." At one time it is France's turn to suffer from artificial alizarin, then India feels the competition of synthetic indigo. Now it looks as if Japan and China were to find out in a similar way what the advance of science may mean in connection with camphor. True Japanese camphor is obtained from a tree which belongs to the laurel family and which is native to China and Japan. The wood is cut into small pieces and subjected to the action of steam whereby the volatile camphor is carried off and condensed in a cool vessel. The amount of this crude camphor annually exported from China and Japan has in recent years run to about 3,000 tons. Most of the camphor supplied from these sources is employed in the manufacture of celluloid, but a certain quantity is used up in medicinal preparations and in explosives. An enormous amount of labor has been expended in the study of the chemical nature of camphor, and this has at last borne fruit, in the synthetic production of the substance. The starting point is turpentine, a resinous liquid which exudes from various trees belonging to the pine family. When turpentine is boiled, a liquid known as oil of turpentine distills over, and from this liquid camphor is produced by laboratory processes into which we cannot enter here. Synthetic camphor is identical with natural camphor in all ordinary physical and chemical properties and provided that a plentiful supply of turpentine at a moderate price is available, the next few years may witness a repetition of what has already occurred in the cases of alizarin and indigo. It is a very confusing circumstance that there is also on the market a product known as artificial camphor, which indeed has an odor resembling that of true camphor, but which is chemically quite a different substance. Synthetic camphor, on the other hand, is chemically identical with the natural product. Another and quite different direction in which we have been trying with success to imitate nature is in the manufacture of rubies. In an earlier part of this volume, it was stated that Mausson had been able to produce real diamonds, so small, however, as to be of no ornamental value. The specimens commonly known as artificial diamonds are spurious. The paste used in their manufacture is chemically quite different from the diamond, which, as the reader knows, is simply crystallized carbon. Artificial rubies, however, are chemically identical with the natural gems, and are indistinguishable from them. Rubies and sapphires are practically pure alumina in the crystallized condition. They consist almost entirely of this compound of aluminum and oxygen. Alumina itself is a colorless substance, and the colors of the natural stones are due to the presence of small quantities of the oxides of chromium and iron. If the crystallized alumina is free from these other materials, we have the mineral known as corundum, which in hardness is second only to the diamond, and with which in an impure form we are familiar as emery, so that the useful and the ornamental, in the shape of emery and ruby, are very closely related. The artificial production of rubies depends simply on the careful fusion of alumina at high temperature, and the addition of a small quantity of dichromate of potash to produce the color. Great care must be taken in the cooling of the fused alumina, if allowed to solidify and cool very rapidly, it is in an unstable condition, like glass which has been similarly treated. It is therefore annealed by putting the artificial ruby while still at a high temperature in a bed of silver sand so that the cooling takes place very slowly. Sapphires may be made in a similar fashion, except that the colouring material added is oxide of cobalt instead of potassium dichromate. The artificial production of sapphires, however, has not been so successful as that of rubies. A new and very striking way of making these gems has been tried lately. It has been found that when natural colorless crystals of corundum, white sapphires as they are called, are exposed to the action of radium bromide, they undergo a gradual change of color. Some specimens assume a blue tint, others a pink, and others still a brownish-orange, so that stones of any desired tint may be obtained. In these and many other ways, then, Man has been trying, and is trying, to imitate and compete with nature. When we look back to that day in 1828, when the artificial production of carbamide was first accomplished, we are filled with wonder at the marvelous advance which has been made in the interval. Not only have we learned how to obtain artificially numbers of valuable natural products, but we can turn out of our laboratories and factories many useful chemical compounds which, so far as we know, do not occur in nature at all. We must, however, beware of pride. We must confess that, although we can produce organic compounds in the laboratory, we cannot turn out an organism. That is a different thing altogether, and there is no prospect that the breath of life will ever be evolved from any chemical mixture, however cunningly devised. End of chapter 22